Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. United States history is dominating the headlines these days. About 700 protesters faced off yesterday in New Orleans where several monuments are being removed. The protest against plans to remove a statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee from downtown Charlottesville, Virginia. How should Americans remember the past and confront the deep wounds of slavery? You know, one lefty reporter out there is even suggesting we blow up Mount Rushmore. At what point does it stop? At what point does it end? In 2017, the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, convened a commission to study the monuments, statues, and plaques that adorn this great metropolis. Some of them had become controversial, and after a summer in which riots around the removal or rededication of a statue of Robert E. Lee resulted in violence and death in Charlottesville, the mayor thought it would be an important gesture and an important actual effort to rethink what to do with the statues that maybe don't represent who this city is or who we are as a country. I sat down with Jack Chen, who's the founding director of the Asian Pacific American Institute at New York University and who founded the Department of Social and Cultural Analysis and co-founded the Museum of Chinese in America in 1979. He's the author of several award-winning books, New York Before Chinatown, Gantt's Photographs of San Francisco's Old Chinatown, and, with Dylan Yates, Yellow Peril, an Archive of Anti-Asian Fear. He now teaches at Rutgers University. He's the inaugural Clement A. Price Chair in Public History and the Humanities and the director of the Clement A. Price Institute. He explained to me how history makes sense of the past, in the sense of how the discipline of history decides what are facts, what is evidence, and how do we tell a story based on those things. That history is the production of knowledge, not just finding the things that people had forgotten. And how this practice can inform how a city can tell its own story for all the people that live or traverse through it. We talked about the commission, we talked about the results, should any of the statues come down or not? And he corrected me and said, that's not quite the right question. And he explained to me how to think about how we make sense in the academy of our past and how that is enacted in daily practice. Great welcome to Professor Jack Chen. Thank you, Jack, for joining me today on Think About It on this foggy, quiet day in New York City. Yeah, December 2nd. Uh, the winter is coming, but uh, happy to be here. Thank you so much. Jack, you've done so many different things and so much work that sort of crosses academia, public engagement, and education in a much broader sense. Where I wanted to start out is you were placed on a commission convened by the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, in I think early fall 2017 to look at the monuments, statues, and some plaques in the city, in the wake of the events and the terrible things that happened in Charlottesville, in the national conversation that involved the mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu, the president of the country, Donald Trump, about what should happen to historical statues in public places. What was the charge that the mayor gave to this group? And you were one of many scholars, artists, public intellectuals, people who've been working in the city. 
What were you charged with to think about? We were charged with the unwieldy mandate to look at the story that the city tells of itself, to try to come up with some guidelines for how this may be organized for the future, but also how to look at instances of the past. These are monuments, markers, and also public art, which over the decades and hundreds of years have been a hodgepodge of, of efforts, mainly financed by civic organizations, or let's say the Broadway corridor with the so-called Valley of Heroes, where people of the moment are being given one of those famous confetti parades, right? So the markers include that. And also the range of public art that's around. So as you can imagine, all of that is rather a mixed bag. I believe of the hundreds of monuments that are just being inventoried, the city doesn't really quite have a sense of what it actually has, and we were never given a list. But there are about 10 that you know, recognize women, and that includes Alice in Wonderland. 10. 10, yeah. So there are lots of really complex, interesting, important questions. But what, what stories can we glean from that? And can we look at them as really historical or not? And what's happened, of course, at this moment is that social history, cultural history, public history have really grown in enormous ways, really emerging out of the civil rights movement and continue to kind of develop into quite complex, important and intersectional kinds of stories and politics. A lot of it, a lot of that scholarship has been mainly in the domain of academic monographs. But the challenge really is how that work can be made more public and it's simply not reading it aloud in public, right? There's all these extra complicated dimensions of what does public history and public scholarship and public storytelling actually constitute. And it's also not a one-way process in which somehow the experts expound or say it orally, but it's a complex dynamic of how can we take the history and experiences of the people of the city of New York, both present, but also past, who have been silenced and have not had their stories represented, how can we engage with that? And this is not a simple discussion of, well, we have to remember everything, because there are some things that actually are better left consciously, consciously in a sense challenged and consciously not so much forgotten, but consciously in some ways put in their place. Because a lot of the history and a lot of the monuments and a lot of the markers, when we actually look back at them, with any kind of understanding, we realize that, oh, okay, General Patan did get a confetti parade, but when was that? And it certainly wasn't for his role in Vichy, heading Vichy, France, but it was before the confetti parade was before that, right? So these are complex questions that always have to be asked. And these are questions that we're asking from the present of the past. And in some ways it raises the question of what is history to begin with, and what stories does a city tell about itself over the hundreds of years that it's been around? To go to that point, which you started with, the city telling its own story. I'm thinking, how can a city tell its own story? I walk past many of these monuments or the plaque for the General Patel, which is 
I think about his achievements in World War One. Then he becomes the leader of Vichy France, yeah. which deports many of its citizens to Nazi Germany to their death. So as you said, historical moment, but there are several historical moments. But how does the city tell itself its own history to its own people outside of public libraries or the mayor declaring something occasionally. So what do monuments do in this relation to history? Because they're just symbols. They don't do very much. So and we could have public policies and that's very important, but they're just standing around. And today it's so foggy, you couldn't even see Columbus probably up there in Columbus Circle. Yeah. So what's the relation of symbols? It's really <laughs> strange or interesting that actually we have huge national debates about symbols. Right. And what do they signify and why is this so important, do you think? Well, part of it's a really interesting question of, you know, the old question of what happens when a tree falls in the middle of a forest and nobody's there to hear it. Well, in fact, we have all these monuments and markers that, in fact, most people don't even notice and they ignore and they become part of just the, the furniture of the city. But when there are moments in which there are groups challenging or questioning or raising, what does this, this man who had, besides being an important pioneer of U.S. gynecology, what does it mean when he also experimented on black women's bodies without using anesthesia? So this is one of the cases you looked at. This is a statue to Marion Sims. Sims, it's, right. Sims. it's on 103rd Street and on the east side, east side of Central Park, sort of across from the Academy for Medicine. So yes, then... and also within the communities that are living up there, they've been protesting this. Especially the East Harlem community has been organizing, and also gay and lesbian activist groups have been pushing this issue for many, many decades. So they've been organizing around it. So it wasn't fall 2017 after Charlottesville that for the first time the city looked at its monuments. So in fact, no. And well, the city has never really looked at its monuments, but people within the city have been always examining them and challenging them, thinking about them, but raising them in more episodic ways that oftentimes don't gain much traction not necessarily sexy for the tabloids nor for the established press. But when there are organized efforts around these statues, then that's when all of a sudden the questions of what does this symbol really represent? What does it really say? And what does it say not just of the moment that it was created, but what does it really say about the fact that it's still prominently displayed in some public space? But that's an amazing way of thinking how history evolves, how our present understanding evolves, which you would think everybody would welcome because there's some hope that we progress in our understanding. So this statue remains, 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 but our understanding changes. The groups that have lobbied for its removal, how do they link to what you said earlier that in the academy, the discipline of history actually underwent some profound changes and different and new kinds of histories where added or actually critiqued a kind of monolithic understanding before? Yeah, well, to get at that question, we have to kind of look at the historical sociology of U.S. education and universities, who was teaching in them, what students were being admitted, how that's changed over the decades, and what the contestations over that has been. And that also raises the deeper question of what kind of stories and histories and scholarship have been produced by those particular peoples and how have immigration policies and exclusion policies 
and reversal of exclusion policies then changed those demographics. A lot of these people who have been added to the conversation have been speaking the whole time. They're just being recognized because institutions found a way to be pushed to accommodate. It's not that they suddenly voluntarily admitted. So there are more voices in the public domain, let's say. The public has always been, especially in New York City, very, very verbal, very clear. But whether universities acknowledge their local knowledges or their broader analyses of, let's say, the Black Atlantic, of enslaved African Americans in the city, and of the institutions that they're creating outside of academia because they're not welcomed within academia, those become actually the broader public scholarship questions in which we can't simply think that somehow these issues are derivative of the scholarship that's in academia. In fact, academia is part of the historic set of problems and universities are themselves monuments of their own creation, which had incredible profound moments of exclusion. There are many universities who had faculty of the time who were deeply involved in eugenics movements or involved in scientific racism, or as we've said, practices that were in a retrospective way, highly questionable, right? And universities have been pushed and challenged to rethink these stories, sometimes through the names of buildings, statues, etc. Right. So many institutions have gone through this. When you were charged with this, so can you talk to me about the four examples that you were ultimately considering? Because you didn't look at hundreds and hundreds of monuments. And New York City is a city that changes every single day. You walk down a block and the, a building that you would get coffee at or get your newspaper is gone and there's another building. So in some ways, change seems to be written into the DNA in New York City, but these things had stayed for quite a while. Yeah, well, we need to have a discussion about the change that happens in the city and the relationship to public memory and the role of memory and meaning making on an everyday level versus the role that civic organizations and organized groups that have money, so wealth and power is very much a part of this configuration, who have money and the organizational capacity to then create a monument or a marker or a statue. So those tensions are very much there both within the institution such as the university, but also within the city government and who's being represented, who's electable within the city government. Clearly we know that there have been periods in which Irish were not considered white and therefore Irish were not a part of the political mm. process and were not, and being Catholics, were not especially welcomed in Protestant elite universities. So there have been battles within, let's say, City College, when it was one of the top universities in the region, there have been battles in which Jewish families and Jewish students were fighting to get in, but then also once they got in to say, wait a minute, this curriculum is so Christian and Protestant that it really distorts a more worldly understanding of what's possible and what's worth knowing, right? So this question of the production of knowledge at any given location, whether it's a city stories about itself, that it tells episodically and unevenly, but we can recognize it when we hear it, such as the city of immigrants, or we are a city of tolerance and pluralism, those kinds of stories that politicians like to tell. And our important values, I think, and contested values, because not all mayors will say that. Certainly Mayor Giuliani was not saying that at different points in time, right? So those are contested, but also the institutions themselves and what they profess to represent and what they in actuality represent in terms of the actual hiring, 
of faculty, the actual admission of students, oftentimes you'll have slippages between, let's say, the first Jewish professor at a private university, which in many institutions was not that long ago, and then how they teach about the Holocaust and what are the assumptions that are actually embedded in the mainstream curriculum. So those, all of those sites are sites of contestation, which include and spill over not only within the institutions, but spill over into the streets of the city itself. So there's a civic culture and the publicness of that. And publicness is constantly being debated as well of who's being actually included, who's being systematically excluded from the public sphere. And in the summer of 2017, it wasn't the first time, but it kind of ignited a public discussion, partly driven by media, I think partly driven also by the fact that we have social media, which is differently organized than traditional journalism. And then you were charged to look at this. You were given a pretty tight time frame. I think you had three months. And we had 90 days. 90 days. That's pretty fast. <laughs> you have to do all the work you've just tried to describe that has taken decades in 90 days to focus on four monuments or facts. Well, we had 90 days. We had three meetings and five public hearings. So the very first meeting was to set up values and guidelines that would be usable. And then since the city doesn't really have a good inventory of how many monuments or markers and public art it has, the decision was to actually use some of the monuments that the mayor had kind of immediately staked out following the horrific death and the conflicts, the march of, of the neo-Nazis and the right in Charlottesville. So his version of that was General Patin, who he was thinking of in terms of being the president of Vichy France, without necessarily understanding the more complicated story that's behind that. He also thought Columbus would be in some ways an obvious one, and that's that circle, Columbus Circle, but also the statue in the middle of the circle has been contested and protested, especially by Native Americans, but also Can by... Can you give us, our listeners a sense who haven't been to New York City recently or at all? What does it look like, this statue in the corner? It's in the southwest West. corner of Central Park. Well, as that location has changed over time, its centrality has also shifted. At this point in time, it's very much at the intersection of Broadway, which used to be a Lenape Trail, used to be a native Lenape Trail. And the contemporary Broadway, all the contemporary Broadway know from Wall Street all the way up. It was up, a north-south trail. a Lenape Trail when Lenape lived on his land, which some still do before white settlers came. Yes, and was part of a massive matrix of trails up and down the East Coast going all the way into the Great Lakes. So that's another complicating question. So there's another layer of history, actually, that you can identify. And you could walk down Broadway and say, this is the Lenape Trail, which extends from the south of this country all the way to the Great Lakes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a layer that's not really probably on every tour guide. And now. in fact, I mean, that's one of the problems is that the story of the city is still immersed in the mythology of the purchase, the so-called purchase of, of Manhattan, the so-called $24 or guilders or baubles that still reigns very strongly as the mythos of how Manhattan emerges. And this mythos, I was in the New York Supreme Court recently for jury duty. There are murals on the walls, which you're not allowed to photograph, where white settlers are overlooking, quote, a primitive settlement, unquote. And then they're trading and they're sort of native people. I don't know if they belong to the Lenape Nation. 
But so this is inscribed in a way, and when you sit in a room like that, suddenly you're doing your civic duty, you're looking at the state Supreme Court's murals, and you're thinking, who painted this? What did they think this story was? And it's a story of triumph and progress, and finally we built this incredible metropolis here. And it harkens back to the critical law theory, legal theory of Peter Fitzpatrick, which talks about the foundation of Western law. The mythology of Western law is that it has no mythology, that somehow it's objective and based on very clearly thought through rational rules and laws and the right of property. But if we actually go back to the origins of the city, especially during the colonial period of the Dutch, and then the competing Puritans and British around the region, then we really have to reckon with the fact that that land was basically taken, stolen, was actually deliberately gamed in the favor of misunderstanding on the side of those who wanted to claim this land as property. And of course, disease was a huge factor in basically the colonial enterprise. So, so this story is still with us. And you've worked a lot with Lenape Nation elders and community members here in the city of New York to make people aware that this is one of the ways. So people come to New York, they could see that. They could actually follow Broadway and see we're walking on what Lenape people actually well, charted. Yeah, that's what we're trying to do. And that's what Native peoples have been trying to do for many decades. At the same time, the prevailing mythology is that somehow that purchase happened and the monuments that the Dutch have put down at Battery Park and also the rock that exists up in Inwood Park saying this is supposedly the site in which the transaction happened. But the prevailing mythology, which in fact is not being taught in the schools anymore, but the prevailing mythology of somehow this was a shrewd real estate deal kind of reemerges. And in some ways of this age of Trump, that's, but that's, that's always been the story. But Gotham, the story of the mythology of Gotham in some ways is linked to that. So, so when you walk up Broadway, then you get to the corner of Central Park and there's this statue of Columbus. It's not small. You can't really miss it. <laughs> it's first of all a circle. And there's Trump Tower, which is right there. And there's this major complex. There's this major shopping complex just on the other side. And if you were to go... And it's on the southern side of Central Park, which is the very elite, very luxurious side. It's just across from Fifth Avenue, which, of course, is the site of major shopping and major international branding. Tiffany's is there, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So we're talking about a, a part of the city that has always been claimed by white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, especially in their fight against the immigrant, the unwashed immigrants who are coming into the city, that this is the site and core of value. This is the most important site, far more than the sites by the rivers. The rivers were always seen as dirty places where there are docks and where the unwashed poor were coming into the island. So this is really the heart of the center of the wealthiest city in the world. Yes. So and it's maintained, prime spot yeah. real estate, and they put this statue up there to signal what? Who put this there to signal? Well, what? there are many statues all around there, but Columbus has been this kind of interesting story of who's been using the symbol of Columbus and not really the history because if we actually look into the history it's much more complicated and rather problematic rather violent and horrific but the symbol of Columbus has been used by white Anglo-Saxon Protestants the so-called founding fathers of the city but also of the nation as really the symbol of European discovery and triumph the arrival of civilization to this new world 
that they treat it as if it was almost empty or as if the native peoples who are here were living as part of nature and not actually having a larger cultivating role. So when we look at the logic of John Locke, which is written into the Constitution of Life, Liberty, and Property, and that gets played around with by Jefferson, life, liberty, and happiness. But happiness in a, has always been, in a really linked interesting way, linked to property. Like, what do you have? How many things do you have? Are you a happy person based on the, the material individualism that's there? So the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant founding fathers and mothers were very much trying to claim a certain kind of mythological heritage that of course goes back to Europe and of course also goes back deeper to Rome and Greece. And that kind of construction of democracy as really being brought into this mm -hmm. savage and primitive lands. And there was absolutely every right for that to happen because the people here didn't understand and didn't actually have a sense of themselves as a, uh, true individuals and true property owners. And this right? story has played itself out on this continent and on every continent for hundreds and hundreds, if not years, and not millennia. So Columbus stands for much more in a way than just New York City in the 20th century, but actually behind him is an entire history of the idea that Western thought is the only thought on the planet, actually, and everybody else must be brought under its sway. Yeah, that deeper sense, and that, that goes back from the very founding of the nation, of the new nation, but also deeper into the colonial past as well. And the fact that Columbus, when now we're looking at the new documentation, the release of his diaries, was not such a wonderful man. I mean, he was a navigator. He did manage to get over here. He wasn't so much a founder, certainly, and that when he landed in the Caribbean and he actually thought he was in the Indies, I mean, he was really given this task of finding the shorter route to the imagined vast luxury items of the Indies and of Cathay, of China and India, the spices and all that, which were what all the European monarchs were competing and setting up these companies, these shipping companies, these exploring companies to find the quickest routes to these places. And Columbus was really, he really imagined that somehow he had run into Japan you know, and it's not to make fun of him. It's really to say that this is a moment in time where there's so little knowledge of the globe and the many land masses and the many peoples who are already here. And what's interesting, it's driven both by, as you're saying, commerce. People want to have stuff, buy stuff at a good price to have what they want to have. Secondly, by a sense of adventure and exploration that's probably in human beings in general that we move out from where we are. That's maybe sort of shared by everybody. But then also a kind of myth that there was a myth about what Japan would be, what China would be, what India would be. So it's driven as much by, let's say, real urgent concerns as by what they imagined they would find. And so then he lands in the Caribbean, and the story is being told now that he founded America. So this is what most kids still sort of absorb, but probably not all kids. So where does the problem arise then? Why don't we just leave the story and say, well, it's complicated and there's money. Some it's complicated. I mean, to it. Just to kind of add a little footnote to what you're saying, absolutely. At the same time, the goods that were being traded and making their way through Marco Polo or through early efforts through the Silk Road and overlanded routes was that there were remarkable things being produced. The porcelains were so fine and translucent and could handle heat in a way 
that certainly the European monarchs were amazed by. And when we think of George Washington in the heat of the Revolutionary War, representing you know, the fight against British tyranny, in the middle of the war, he'd be making his orders of porcelain to his local quote-unquote Chinaman lower on the Lower East Side in Lower Manhattan. And the Chinaman was not actually a Chinese person, but it was actually the British merchant always bringing in the latest porcelains that were making their way into the British world and also through the British trade. So you have so, networks of relations. Yeah. The world is globalized long before this becomes a study yes. for academics in the late 80s. Yes. And yes. these networks also, they reinforce but also run a bit counter to this narrative that as you say, white Anglo men are the only ones who discover anything. Yes. <laughs> They're actually dependent on the ingenuity, skills, expertise, traditions of many other peoples. The so-called triumph of Columbus in discovering and civilizing the New World was really just an extension of the monarchs trying to find these goods that they could consume as a way to prove that they were more civilized and superior. And there's a competition amongst them all, right? They were, first of all, there were a lot of them were related, right? But there was a competition of who would have the ability to have access to the very latest set of porcelains that you could then show off in your banquets, right? So it comes down to very simple things. And in fact, that was true for the founding fathers and mothers as well. They were competing as trying to prove that they were sophisticated, entitled, well-mannered individuals by having the distinction of consuming these goods and having the good taste of It's of quite interesting that. that you're saying there is a competition for symbolic dominance. It doesn't really mean that much whether you're drinking from the most exquisite cups, but it does matter greatly if you're competing for what you appear to be. So you said there's more recent scholarship on Columbus that sort of revises some of these things. It's, it's so yeah. what are the footnotes that become bigger and bigger, then some yeah. people start saying, well, maybe this is not quite the right story. Well, anymore. so with Latin American scholars, with scholars uh, looking at the indigenous peoples of the Caribbean, and also the translations of his diaries and making them available so that part of the mythology keeps these other kinds of archives from being tapped. And they're kind of kept in some ways in the back rooms and not brought to the foreground to the public. And is the public interested? Well, now the public is interested because there's a much more global, educated public that wants to know, well, what was in Columbus's diaries? And, and if you look at his diaries, they're pretty horrific. And what you're saying that the scholarship is supposed to get us to more advanced knowledge, closer to a truth, but it's also propping up certain identities. So yes. saying other people are now invested in saying, we're gonna look at all the scholarship and actually this is giving us a very different picture. Um, a, a broader, more complicated, more intersectional and more rigorous history. And it confronts old preconceptions that had been taught, old textbooks that if you go back and look in the libraries and look at the old textbooks that were really being taught even in the 50s and 60s or then earlier and centuries earlier, the prevailing stories that were circulating in the newspapers. Now, when I ask you something about this, yeah. this new knowledge that comes in, it's been available and been around. So it's not that yes. someone suddenly discovers, sometimes they are great archival discoveries, but it's not that in 2016, someone finally thought of translating these diaries. So people just maybe not the people in power, had always been aware that there was a problem with this one-sided story. Yeah. So it's not suddenly someone discovers and says, oh, we have to revise the picture of the past, right? So this is not how history quite works. And some great academic comes along and says, I have to now revise. It's not a paradigm shift in that way. But this evidence had been frequently in plain sight for a long time. 
Yes and no. It's been out there, but only for the people who are actually looking for it and only for the scholars who have tenure and the power to actually insist that these stories are actually part of the complicating narrative in American universities. So it takes someone like Michel Rolf Trujillo, for example, who's written one of the classic books of history, but also of the production of knowledge called The Silencing of the Past. Silencing the Past, Power and the Production of History, right? So that's a very interesting title by itself, Silencing the Past, in a sense that people's voices and people's lives and the reality of their lives, which is very noisy and very complicated, that's been silenced. But then the subtitle of power and the production of history is really the animating question, history itself. What we think of history, it goes through a production process and how that's linked to power and power both in terms of those who have the money, but also who endows the universities and therefore what constitutes the archives of universities, what constitutes the facts that are gleaned and created by scholars in universities, what are the stories that are taught in the classrooms, and then ultimately all those things, facts, collections, archives, narratives, how that all is necessary for the production of, let's say, a history book that gets supported. So history, you're saying, does not exist on its own. The facts do not speak for themselves. They're just out there and you need to assemble them into a narrative, but it gets produced. This power you describe, institutional power, access to communication. If you write textbooks, that's very powerful. You may not be a star academic, but if you write textbooks for millions of students, that's very powerful. In the city, it's the power to put up a monument. In Charlottesville, it was about the power to put up a monument, the Robert E. Lee statue with the Jackson Stonewall. They were put up in the 1920s right. to really tell African-Americans where their place is in that city. Retrospectively. It, and much later, it wasn't in 1866 or something. It was done in the 1920s. So here, this Columbus statue is, it's a production of history. It's a production of knowledge. We decided this is the man we want to put up. We could have put many other things up. So when you looked at the statue as a statue, what was your charge in some ways to come up with this recommendation for Mayor de Blasio to do with this thing? Well, the charge was to look at it based on the guidelines we came up with, which I think are actually interesting and good guidelines. And the guidelines recognize that power and wealth are very much part of the civic power that creates a monument like this, and that the history of this monument is actually more complicated because it wasn't the WASP who put up the monument. It was actually Italian-Americans. So... In some ways, we're talking about Italian-Americans at a moment in the early 1900s, in the, in the early 20th century, who were struggling as immigrants of color to fight against the severe racism, especially the Southern Italians and Sicilians, who were by and large the population that was coming here, who were accused of being darker people, so accused of being inferior. And in fact, the eugenics movement coming out of the Gilded Age. And the eugenics movement, I want to just kind of stipulate, is it was actually a progressive era movement. It wasn't simply this pseudoscience. It was actually part of the progressive era solution that experts were able to, in some ways, become the new priesthood of creating a good and righteous society. Mm -hmm. One that would have well-trained intellectuals and well-trained social workers and well-trained bureaucrats who would actually be able to make the right decisions 
and help to mitigate the excesses of extreme wealth and to create some regulation around that. But premised within that was the notion of scientific racism that had been a through line from the origins of American universities into the turn of the century. And the, the argument of eugenics was actually very important to kind of talk about in this background. So this is very complicated. In the, so you're saying the eugenic movement sits in a larger progressive idea that some of it we would actually maybe subscribe to and say this is actually okay. But there's a part of it that is so horrific and abhorrent to us today. Then you're saying Italian-Americans put this up, this statue, which is very offensive to lots of people today, but in an effort to actually be recognized and not be ostracized, discriminated against, demeaned as lesser than white Americans. So the origin is in a complicated place then. They were being lynched, for example, in New Orleans and Louisiana. And they were... As typical in many parts of the country, they were being treated as blacks. Yeah, there's a famous case, I think, in 1921, New yes. Orleans, they're, they're actually acquitted of a crime, a group of Italian-Americans, and then they all murdered yes. in a lynch mob. Right. So they're trying to take up Columbus as a symbol for what? Italian-Americans strategically then decide, of those who are editing newspapers, Italian-American newspapers, those businessmen, those trade union organizers, they're saying, well, we need to figure out a strategy of how to resist and fight against this grievous injustice of racism towards us. And the complications of how this happens in the US, of course, is a typical solution. The typical solution is to say, well, we actually are not the bad people. These other people may be the worst people that you should be looking at, but we are carrying on the tradition of Columbus. So the hero that white Anglo-Saxon Protestants were using to say that this is the mythology of civilization that we're ascribing to, of property, of dominion, of proper dominion, is then taken up by Italian-Americans who are saying, this was an Italian-American. This is our hero too. We are organizing ourselves along this hero that now is the same hero that you, mm -hmm. the white ruling class, also has. So this is their entry ticket into the club of Americans who matter in the power, they think, and using this figure of Columbus as a we are part of that, and that is who you like, so therefore we're actually part of you. And these are males, men, who are aligning themselves with and forming their own Masonic-like organizations to align with the dominant right. Masonic organizations that are already around. But can I ask you something about the book title? It said Power and the Production of History. history yeah. So this is in the 1920s, and someone, a group of Italian-Americans, decide we want to be part of the production of history. We're going to inscribe ourselves into this yes. tradition of yeah. honoring Columbus. Then yeah. you're in 2017, another group. And aren't you another group that says, we now have the power to produce history, and we're going to revise it. So the challenge is always, or people have asked me this many times, like, well, who are you then to decide that Columbus should stand or fall, that this should come down, which is... And we have this on the global context. We have roads must fall in South Africa. We've had huge amounts of debates all over Europe about museums and statues in Latin America, in, in Asia. So how did your group work this out to, in order not to just become another group? We have power right now. There's a mayor who likes this. Let's act quickly before another group comes in. <laughs> well, that's why the discussion, the 90-day whirlwind discussion, was actually very unsatisfactory because there's no real way to resolve these kinds of questions. And it's really to say that any enlightened city 
or any enlightened group of people need to have processes in which these are dialogues and debates and discussions that are always there. Now, of course, that's a very idealized kind of statement and assertion. But I think if we were to genuinely subscribe to participatory democracy that was actually grounded in some notion that the stories we tell ourselves have to have some basis with actual historical reality. And the complicating, interesting twist is that our contemporary moments are constantly shifting as we're discovering questions that we were not aware of. And also new people are joining us in the American society who are asking questions that had never been asked. So, we're... so those are two different things, things we weren't aware of. And there are actually new questions to be asked. Absolutely. And new questions are always being asked from the point of view of the present. So history is never some distant, reconstructed past. History is a living project in which it always has to be asked from the present day. This is interesting because a lot of the, con the statutes debate, the confederate debates are about people saying, this is our history, we just want to preserve and honor it. And there's a sense, and this is static, I interviewed several people, had great conversations about Charlottesville and these terrible events that happened there, and someone said, the argument about Jefferson is a genuine one. He said, these students who came there to protest the statue of Jefferson, and the protesters who also came, both make a claim that is legitimate. And he said, I cannot decide that one claim is less important. He said the whole point, he was the founder of scientific racism in America and the person who envisioned a democracy where everybody would be equal. And, and that he was the father of Sally Hemings' many children. children. That's what Annette Gordon-Reed has proven. Yes. And there are still historians out there who have actually had conversations with Matt on the podcast who would still dispute this. Right. The argument they gave me when they disputed this, they wanted to defend a gentleman's honor. They thought this history kind of revisionism is problematic because it actually undoes everything. And so when you're saying history is made in the present and we have new questions right now, how do you then come up with the FA 90 days with any kind of recommendation? <laughs> because I actually asked two people, two students before I came over here, whether they, we should pull the statue <laughs> I did a representative sample of two students and both of them said, yeah, it should come down. <laughs> Well, so the premise was that we set up these guidelines, which I think are quite good, and you should post them online. I will post them online, yes. Yeah. And it's a set of guidelines that I think can be a set of living guidelines, not like a dead constitution where there's some originary moment which was not meant to be changed, but a set of living, working guidelines, right? So I think that's well worth having out there. And then, based on a kind of ritual performance of democracy, and participation, which I believe in, but at the same time in 90 days, it is mainly a set of performances. But you tried, you had public we hearings. We tried. We people tried. had options to write in, so when they weren't available. So you listened to as many people as you could. That's part of it. Try to give voices or listen to the voices of people who weren't there. And your committee was very diverse in terms of right. background and experience. Right, right. So the little bit of time we had at the very last meeting was to supposedly have the guidelines, listen and have taken in all these testimonies, the hundreds of testimonies in all five boroughs, also digested the letters that came in, but we never actually had moments to look at the scholarship and the research that had been done on these four, these four monuments. But supposedly the theory of it was to take all that in 
and then to make some deliberative judgments about what should be done. So in theory, it's not a bad process, but it broke down because the process itself did not support the theory. The process itself became stripped and condensed and badly organized, although I think there was goodwill on all the parts of the people who were the staffing that had to make this happen. But from a public historian's point of view that believes in democratic processes, in some ways it's being more critical than whatever outcome it is, that the processes themselves are left to a more symbolic level of fact-finding and truth-finding than an actual process of engaged critical research and discussion. And is that part because of the expediency that's needed and its politics and there's a huge public discussion? So there was a bit of pressure, let's say, on the mayor or the people running it to say, we have to have some kind of result. We cannot do what the academy allows us to do, which is fantastic to say you have deeper, longer, sustained dialogue. They had to come up with something because people were impatient and it came up over and over and said, are you going to take down Columbus? What's next? That's the question. Well, the mayor, in some ways, to his credit, wanted to do something. I think there was some discussion about it in the public, but I think he wanted to take a leadership role in that. And it's not to say that the fact that there are elections coming up also didn't have an impact. I mean, that, of course, does. And that's what politicians have to do on a, on a regular basis. But it is to say that how he formulated the process was not thought through. And I think the way city government in general gestures towards participation in democracy, but actually has failed in many ways to be able to actually carry it through. Now, I'm, as a public historian, I'm not one to say that we should just, you know, spend years and years and years deliberating. I think that academic default and tendency is not the solution I would recommend. But there needs to be a more intelligent public historical process that's played out. And in retrospect, it's always easy to say that if that was done, that would have been a better set of decisions. But we made the decisions, we had the debates, and we ended up with what we ended up with. And I wonder whether also the fall of 2017, the country was thinking about this. Mitch Landrews book in the shadow of statues made some public some publicity, I think deservedly so, for a white Southern mayor taking on these statues and deciding to actually pull some of them down with great opposition in his own city. So there was pressure that's it's hard to gauge whether actually a longer process and the, the terrible thing is and then something happens, it distorts the entire discussion in terrible ways. And that has been my experience of learning from speaking to people in Charlottesville who said, this has changed everything about how we think about our own city. Yeah. What do you think about this argument that people say, well, if you remove one of these, where does it end? Then you have to revise all of history. And of course, we have many examples of statues coming down and no one actually opposing because everybody seems to agree they are problematic. But in other cases, people attach. So what if Italian-Americans say to you, yeah, I understand and I grant you there's a complex history and this is a very ambivalent figure and there's been terrible things conducted in his name. Nonetheless, he also is a matter of pride for our community that has gone through its own hardships. So how do you respond to people when they're in their feeling? As I interviewed Prudence Carter, who is the Dean of Education at Berkeley, and she said, the conservative students and people who oppose these things, they're in their feeling. I recognize it. Mm -hmm. 
how do you respond to those kinds of concerns? Well, feelings are important, and feelings tend to strategically organized have incredible political potency. But feelings, of course, and identities and informed knowledge and a sense of taking what necessarily are conflicting perspectives into account are all the stuff of what a genuine democracy has to be about. And I think when these things go out of balance, they tend towards what the media, I think, wrongly derides as simple-minded pluralism, which in some ways is this kind of mob rule kind of approach that somehow all people are being governed by their feelings and or quote-unquote their identities, and that that's the bad thing. Now, I say that it's a complex process, and we have to recognize, I think, if we're committed to more democratic, more informed processes that acknowledge feelings and acknowledge identities, that we have to look upon that as a complex mix that we always have to take into account. Now, the problem is, is that when politicians or anybody takes a shortcut and really emphasizes mainly the emotions that can be manipulated, especially for authoritarian purposes, then we're going down a very slippery slope. So there has to be certain kinds of standards that we hold our elected politicians accountable to. And I think there's been a terrible lack of that. And in some ways, it's culminated in some ways in the sorry state of politics that we have at this moment. So, I mean, I understand that the mayor is going through an election. I'm someone who actually has supported this particular mayor. But at the same time, very aware of how public policy gets jammed into a process and with people who otherwise need to be part of an extended process of active democratic participation. And that in some ways we have an impoverishment of our democracy now because that active political participation then in some ways I would argue had been more active with certain kinds of groups, especially perhaps I would say after World War II and a lot of the GIs, the white ethnic GIs, the Italians and Irish and Jews who were not a part of the WASP elites, mm -hmm. who came back with the GI Bill and having been educated, became actually more active in a sense of what urban politics could mean. Now, this is also true perhaps at earlier moments in the city especially, but I'm really just saying that there has to be an activated population who are organizing in interesting, important ways. So I would say the unions, having been organized and having union educational schools and having a long memory of what union policies, pro-union policies would be for politicians, or for that matter, adult education schools for immigrants, right? That if you have these kinds of infrastructures in which you understand that it's not simply a matter of feelings and identities, but it's a matter of complex interests and policies, and what are the dynamic forces that are constantly pushing politicians in other directions, and needing to intervene with mediating institutions and constituencies that represent these blocks of votes, right? So that breakdown, I think, has been horrific. And with that breakdown, you don't have these intermediating educational and very strategic kinds of bodies being represented that have an impact on a mayoral or a city council election. Do you think there's any um, upside or silver lining to these 
debates or controversies that we've had in the country in different locations. So you've worked for so many years on correcting a kind of self-understanding of America as one narrative. And you say there are many other competing narratives. So do you think there's something, in spite of maybe not having quite the institutions you just described as adult education or more accessible education for lots of people who are not given access to elite institutions. Do you think there's anything that's happening in the country right now where there are more informed discussions? Yeah. So, you know, just to complete that thought and then get into the way I think a new formation is emerging, is that with suburbanization and redlining, you have the evacuation of a complex of what we would now say white ethnics who had at one time been kind of racialized others and despised others, Irish Catholics, Jewish people of all kinds, Italian Americans of all kinds and classes and backgrounds, moving out into the suburbs because their neighborhoods are being redlined. So in some ways, the organizations that they had built in the cities then also disappear into the suburbs. And the suburbs really are less organized places to have an impact on urban politics, clearly. Then you have of course, new groups who are moving into these spaces that are vacated, that have been kind of left in terrible shape, but also new immigrant populations as immigration laws change and exclusion laws are taken away, 65 being the most important one, from 1924 to 1965. That period of time was when eugenics basically had the dominant influence on U.S. immigration policy, so that it greatly preferred Northern Protestant and Northern European Protestants, so this whole idea of Nordics and a certain kind of racial purity and those being really the best Americans to continue to be here. Mm -hmm. To this day, Trump is still caught up in that imaginary, right? But Northern and Western Europeans as being the Nordic Europeans who really should be given priority in terms of immigration. So and can the these groups yeah. that now come, so after yeah. 65, this changes a bit and you're saying with a kind of move to suburbia of some of these earlier groups, yeah. do some of these civic institutions, whether they're publicly organized or self-organized, do they get filled by new people? And is there sort of a new energy? Sometimes, but oftentimes not. So the Knights of Columbus is probably not going to change as much, yeah. but churches do change. And there are certain kinds of more democratically committed civic organizations that do change. Oftentimes, the settlement houses and social service agencies necessarily change. So they may have been Jewish at one point, and they still are Jewish and still organized under Jewish names. But in fact, they change because they're location specific, and they are committed to that Lower East Side location, for example. I want to ask you another question. So the First Lady of New York City has just recently announced that they're going to have 100 statues for women, accomplished women, unveiled, I think, next year. She mentioned, she said, this is for young girls and young women and women of all backgrounds to see themselves reflected in who we are. What's your vision? If you had, we're given the charge to design the urban environment of New York City right now, what would it look like? What kind of statues or public monuments would we have to make us aware of where we really are in terms of public places? Well, for me, the key is the storytelling and what story is the city trying to tell. And that's what I'm hoping can be changed. And so I'm going to answer your question in a minute, but the story that's not been told, that's been disappeared, even more so than the story of women, 
although that is critical. So I'm, I'm delighted that that's going to change. But at the same time, that costs a huge amount of money. And is that investment of that kind of money the best way to change the symbolic storytelling that's there? But the foundational story that's not being told, and this is what we concluded coming out of the 90 days, a number of us were kind of hitting on this point consistently with the various monuments, Teddy Roosevelt included, Marion Sims included, Columbus included, and Patan included, that the question of dispossession, colonial dispossession and enslavement are at the foundation of the history of the region. And I say the region because we were even talking about before there was a New York City and before this became kind of this industrial dynamo and a region of industrial dynamo and how before the city became the empire city, the city of the empire state, that questions of dispossession of land and enslavement and building the foundational wealth of power and also the evacuation of the land, the pushing out of native peoples from the land so that it could become broken into sections of property. So if we were to follow, for example, the story of the Rutgers family, which were a Dutch family who had been for generations in the right place at the right time, as part of the Dutch West India Company arriving. And after the Kif's War, the Kif's Massacre of Lenape peoples from Corlier's Hook, which is part of the Lower East Side area, that the Rutgers family was able to have a very large farm. And on that farm, they had a brewery, they hired, well, they didn't hire, they enslaved Africans, African-Americans to work that land. And soon they began, as the city began to develop and become more of a place for real estate and a place for settlement, they turned that into many lots that now resemble the way the blocks exist today. So Henry Street Settlement, for example, was named after Heinrich. So this is Rutgers. today's Lower East Side. Today's Lower East Side. Now a real estate boom in itself happening after years and years of public housing and probably public neglect as well. And had been the place that immigrants had moved into uh, historically Lower East Side because it was actually, you know, the land was not considered prime land. And it was in many ways that part of the city was kind of left for the poor. Um, and how would you tell this in. kind of story of the Rutgers family and these kinds of pre-modern stories or before sort of New York becomes New York and the public imagination? How would you make people aware of these stories? Well, so that's actually a great family example because I think by extending the fantastic work of Eric Sanderson's mapping, of the city. Yes. Eric Sanderson, for those who don't know, is a wildlife ecologist who grew up in California, came to New York about 20 years ago, and with that outsider's curiosity, wanted to know, well, what did this region actually look like at an earlier moment? So he then decides to create the best guess based on algorithms and his knowledge of flora and fauna and topology, geography, geology of what Manhattan, but now the five boroughs, were like two hours before the arrival of Henry Hudson in 1609. So this is when Lenape people are living here, cultivating this land, is their living lands. their own civilization. Yeah. And he's mapping this two hours before the arrival of Henry Hudson. So Henry you Hudson. can now go online and look at this fantastic site called Wallachia in which you can toggle back and forth between any given block of Manhattan, but soon the five boroughs, and 
toggle back to two hours before Henry Hudson arrives and see what were the likely plants that were there, where the streams were, what the topology, because the island of Manhattan was actually very mountainous and very hilly and actually quite interesting. And then it was flattened out in 1811. But up until then, there are lots of microclimates. It was not simply a real estate grid, <laughs> which is what it is now. What you're describing seems to me a kind of net gain. We would have a deeper understanding. Why do you think people see this always as a loss or as a criticism and say, well, well we once acknowledged that we have to get rid of this entire other dominant history of America? Why do these battles become these kinds of pitched battles of, if I acknowledge your history, this history of indigenous America, I have to give up another one? Yeah. Why do you think people cannot hold these layers of history? Well, I think because it's been posed that way by those in wealth and power. It's been posed that way, that actually they don't want to quite deal with the messiness mm. of the founding mythology of property ownership. It's a tricky one, especially for so What do we City. put in the place of Columbus Circle, in the center of that circle? What do you think? And you're off the commission now. You've made your <laughs> very informed recommendation. What would you think should be there? Should it be with an additional plaque? Should it be taken down, removed, or should it be? Well, the decision was to not take it down. I voted to take it down. I voted with what I felt were very fair support of Native American requests to take it down. And then the decision was, one of the options was to complicate the story somehow in that immediate circle. Since the southwest corner of Central Park is right there, then maybe to put up something else up complicating narratives that talk about Italian-American disenfranchisement and anti-Italian racism and put the context of why that even exists to begin with, right? That's all fine to some degree, you know, but that's in fact not how, in some ways that I felt that the impetus to do that is a way to kind of tap down public engagement as opposed to increasing public engagement. And my point of view from what I'd said before about needing to build organizations that are civic organizations that increase the ability to be a democratic people to make more informed judgments, right? That we need to move in that direction. So how do we do that? Now, if you're given, let's say $10 million, do you put it towards one, maybe two monuments that do that? Or a hundred text panels that help to do that? Or do you invest that same money in other ways? So for me, the reality of our given moment is that we pay much more attention to our smart devices than we actually do looking at what's around us. We're kind of walking from subway station to work or subway station to our favorite restaurant, and we're actually not stopping and reading. Maybe the tourists do, maybe they don't. But in fact, what they're going to see and read is not going to be that helpful. But we are actually now living at a time in which people spend an inordinate amount of time, including myself, staring in front of this tiny screen. Now, the days of the tiny screen are actually soon over, and we're going to be wearing our technologies. I'm not... Like most people who are listening to this podcast are actually walking yes. to work, from work, doing their dishes, taking care of something, hopefully not their kids right now, driving. But you're right. So you say this could be a moment to actually see an opportunity to say, so you could be in this place, and you could suddenly click into a much deeper history. Yeah. But it has to be done in a evocative, provocative, exciting, creative way of storytelling, of creative nonfiction. So that I think this compound, this 
awkward compound of creative nonfiction is really the space that is most important. If we had a didactic lecture about what the statue represents, I think that would be horrific. It would be ignored, just you know, people would leave it by droves. That's not the solution. But we have to have an engaged public that has many points of view and have people actually judge. I think one really. step could be if you actually could just tap into a recording of the public hearings you had and yes. say, here's 10 different opinions, all in their feeling, but not just driven by identity or feeling, as you said, but actually saying this together shapes the plurality of our city and of our nation and of the people who come here, which are probably a lot of people from abroad as well, other places, to say this is to be taken together as saying there's a chorus and there's something to be gained from here. And it's not everybody's identity pitted against everybody else's. Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, we've got a city of actors, not just our everyday residents where we're all acting in some way and performing in some way. We've got a city of actors who should be at Columbus Circle. And that should be part of what the city supports is these performances. They're debating these questions all the time. And, you know, a person in the dress, it can be man, woman, it doesn't matter, in the guise of Columbus reading from his, her diaries would actually be very powerful. In the city, there we have Columbus Circle, we have the entire mall there, we have Columbia University. We have a lot of people there to have Columbus, so maybe someone will be the sponsor of something like that. Yeah, I, <laughs> you know, and, but it should always be in the spirit of more engagement and deeper engagement, because the more exposure we have to this, the more capacity we have to think a little more complexly, more than simply should it be taken down or should it be kept up. Because in fact, if it's taken down, hopefully there's more debate but if it's taken down, usually people just forget even quicker. And if it's kept up, are people really going to really notice? So I'm really advocating what is the effective way in which people are going to notice. So I think that's the challenge of anybody who's engaged with public work. Right. Jack, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. I do want to extend a public invitation to have you back on and talk about the museums and, and curricula. So thank you so much for participating today. My pleasure. Thanks.